Thursday night, uh, early Friday morning, so Thursday night, early Friday morning, I couldn't sleep, and so I picked up my iPad and um, started reading the 1882 work by the Russian writer Leo Tolstoy called A Confession. Now, as soon as I tell you that, it makes me sound a lot smarter and more profound than I really am. I don't always read something like that in the middle of the night. I could just as easily be reading a Sports Illustrated article or scrolling through my Twitter timeline, but it's not a particularly long book, and it had been on my reading list for a long time, Uh, so there you have it. A Confession is an autobiographical account of the crisis of meaning that Tolstoy experienced after he had had enormous success and literary acclaim from his masterpieces, War and Peace and Anna Karenina, widely considered some of the best realistic fiction uh, ever penned. Early in the book, he tells the story of how a friend of his had come to reject his religious beliefs. And I want you to see what he writes. It's, this is a little lengthy, but it's, uh, I, think, I think you'll be okay. Uh, I think you'll be able to hang with this. At the age of 26, he says, while taking shelter for the night during a hunting trip, he knelt to pray in the evening, as had been his custom since childhood. His older brother who had accompanied him on the trip, was lying down on some straw and watching him. When S, that's the abbreviation of the person's name, when S had finished and was getting ready to lie down, his brother said to him, so you still do that? And they said nothing more to each other. From that day, S gave up praying and going to church. And for 30 years, he has not prayed, he has not taken Holy Communion, and he has not gone to church. Not because he shared his brother's convictions, went along with him, nor was it because he had decided on something or other in his own soul. It was simply that the remark of his brother had the remark his brother had made was like the nudge of a finger against a wall that was about to fall over from its own weight. His brother's remark showed him that the place where he thought faith to be had long since been empty. Subsequently, the words that he spoke, the signs of the cross he made, and the bowing of his head in prayer were, in essence, completely meaningless actions. Once having admitted the meaninglessness of these gestures, he could no longer continue them. Thus, it has happened and continues to happen, I believe, with the great majority of people. I was fascinated with what I was reading in light of the passage that I knew that we were looking at today. And I want to see, as we go through this passage, if you can make the connection back to this passage from Leo Tolstoy's book, A Confession. Turn in your Bibles this morning to Revelation chapter 3. Revelation chapter 3, if you're visiting with us, welcome. Uh, As you can see on the front of the program that you were given, uh, we're in this series that's called uh, Seven Letters. It's from Revelation chapter 2 and 3. Uh, in these letters, uh, Jesus dictates these letters, excuse me, to seven first century churches living in and under the massively powerful Roman Empire. And because Jesus says that these letters are relevant to every church throughout history, we have been using these letters to evaluate City Church here at the beginning of 2019. Now, the particular letter that we're going to be looking at today is to a church in a place called Sardis. Sardis was a city whose greatness really had been in the past. It had once been a city of great wealth and splendor, but it had deteriorated greatly by the time that this letter was written. Sardis was known for the worship of the mother goddess Sibylle, and the festivals held in her honor saw some of the uh, grossest depravity 
imaginable. Nevertheless, a group of people had come to believe in the Lord Jesus Christ there. And I want to read what Jesus says to them. To the angel of the church, starting in verse 1, to the angel of the church of Sardis write, these are the words of him who holds the seven spirits of God and the seven stars. Now, we'll come back to the significance of that in a few minutes, but for now, let's read on. Jesus says, I know your deeds. You have a reputation of being alive, but you are dead. In all of the other letters to this point, Jesus introduces himself like he does in this letter, and then in all of the other letters, before he gets to anything critical that he has to say about them, he proceeds first to commend the church to whom he's writing. But not this church, not this letter. This is the only letter so far that Jesus has no commendations for, which is quite startling because apparently this was a church that had no shortage of commendations from other people. He says they had a reputation of being alive, but the reality of this church was far from their reputation. They were dead. Now, I want to just let that, I just want to let that sink in for just a moment. They had a reputation for being alive, which means that other people, maybe even in other churches in other cities, talked about this church, pointed to this church as a model church, and said, man, that church is, that church is alive. And I think what concerns me the most about this passage is just how easy it would be as a pastor or a staff or a church board to get caught up in your press clippings and the numerical growth of the church that often comes with that and deceive yourself into thinking that God is blessing your church in some way or that he's really doing something significant in your church when in reality he's completely unimpressed and in fact he says your church is dead if the church in Sardis were around today its leaders might hold seminars and conferences about how to build a church that is alive, and other leaders from other churches around the country would pay to go to those seminars and conferences to learn from them about how to build a church that is alive. People would flock to the church telling their friends and their family members about what a great church they're a part of. People would marvel at the church's reach, apps and podcasts and satellite churches and books and and so on. And there's not anything wrong, by the way, with any of those things. It's not that. It's just that Jesus looks at all of that in this particular church, and he says, yeah, but you're dead. And this issue of reputation versus reality, name versus heart, often comes up in the Scriptures. Perhaps the clearest statement is when the prophet Isaiah quotes the Lord, saying, he says this, he says, the Lord says, these people come near to me with their mouth, and honor me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me. By the way, does that particular verse, does that sound familiar to you? Doesn't that sound just like the young man that Tolstoy was describing? Who was outwardly going through all of the motions of faith, but inwardly realized that it was all empty? That's, that's what Jesus is saying about this particular church. I don't know how much uh, those of you who've been around City Church for a while have noticed it, but City Church has grown quite a bit in the last year, and I often hear from people about how much energy there is here and how much excitement and how alive it feels, and I'm glad about all of that, of course. 
But I have to tell you that this passage is a splash of cold water in the face that reminds us that the outward signs that make people think and feel that a church is alive are often remarkably different from reality. And since Jesus breaks from the normal pattern of these letters, I want to break from the way that, from the pattern that we've been using to examine these letters. And I want to start first here by looking at Jesus' diagnosis of the problem in this church, the diagnosis of the problem in this church. Because I think that there are some things that even though this church is way back in history in the first century, I think there are some things in here that we can learn from. Let's look at the diagnosis of the problem in this church. And You know, Jesus doesn't tell us straight up what it is that makes him say that this church's reputation doesn't match their reality, but there is a clue that gives us some insight. Skip down to verse 4. Jesus says, even though he says this church is dead, he says, yet you have a few people in Sardis who have not soiled their clothes. They will walk with me dressed in white for they are worthy. Now, that feels obscure to us, but it would have hit home for the people in this church because Sardis was famous for its wool and its textile industry. So talking about robes would have caught their attention in the first place. More than that, though, it was also a city, as I mentioned earlier, that was devoted to the worship of a false god, the mother goddess, Sibylle. And no temple worshiper was allowed to approach her temple in anything but a clean, white Robe, nothing dirty, or as Jesus describes it, soiled, nothing unclean was allowed. Now, the point that Jesus is making is that regardless of whatever their reputation was, whatever they did or they said on the outside that made people think that they were alive, though there were a few people were not uh, in this church weren't guilty, most of the church was still somehow practicing and clinging to the worship of this false goddess, this idol. Whatever they said or did on the outside regarding Christ, their hearts were with this false goddess. Maybe in their private lives, they ritually worshipped her. Maybe they had a shrine to her in their homes. We don't know. But whatever they said or did on the outside, their hearts were with this false goddess. And that's what Jesus, that's the reason Jesus says that they're dead. Now, you might be thinking, well, what does that have to do with us? I mean, we don't, we don't worship false idols today in America. We don't have temples built where we go to worship pagan gods. You're for the most part, right? But our idols today, our idols today are mostly psychological idols. But they're idols nonetheless. Let me give you a definition of, a, of an idol, of a false god. A false god is anything that we praise celebrate, fixate on, and look to for help and happiness that are not the true God. False gods are anything we praise, celebrate, fixate on, and look to for help and happiness that are not the true God. I'll give you another way to think about this. Pastor and author uh, Tim Keller makes the point that our idols are usually good things that we turn into ultimate things. So let me just give you an example, one example. There's millions of kinds of idols probably, but let me just give you one example. Kids. Kids. I've met more than one set of parents over the years who've made their kids' happiness and success their ultimate thing, like their idol. 
Now, nothing wrong with, with loving your kids. Nothing wrong with that at all. But listen to me. There's, there's an important distinction coming up here. Wanting your kids to be good, happy kids is, of course, not wrong. But when your kids' happiness and success becomes your ultimate source of security and happiness, want turns into need. And when want turns into need, it's not just that you want your kids to be good and happy and successful kids. It's that you need them to be because they have become your source of validation, meaning, significance, and happiness. And you will do everything within your power to make sure that they are those things, that they are happy, that they're successful. You will overschedule them in any and every sport, club, and hobby, whatever, to make sure that they reach their potential. You will prevent them from ever failing or feeling pain. You will control them to the point that they feel unable to express themselves and their unique personality. You will criticize and manipulate them until they do exactly what you want them to do. You will chew out any coaches or teachers who do not affirm your child's greatness and superiority over all children, which is what makes coaches and teachers' jobs impossible and miserable. And can I get an amen from coaches, ex-coaches, teachers, and (laughs) ex-teachers? on that. When they get older and married, you will demand that they be in your home at the holidays. We could go on and on and on. You get the point. This good thing, your kids wanting them to be happy and successful, that good thing has turned into an ultimate thing. A want has become a need, a demand. You may go to church on Sunday mornings and sing songs about God's goodness and faithfulness and your devotion to Christ, but down deep, your whole sense of comfort and security and happiness is your kids' happiness and success. Your functional God is your kids. And by the way, woe to the kids who are their parents' idols. It is a terrible way to grow up and a terrible way to live. Now, that's just, that's just one example of an idol, of course. Many, many different kinds of idols. In fact, most of us have multiple idols. And I want to just give you two little self-diagnostic tests that you can, deter- you, that you can use to determine what your idols are. The first one is, is this. If I have that, I will be happy, feel secure, and valued, and know my life is meaningful. Whatever that is, is your idol. And then the second one is, if I could never have that, I wouldn't want to live. Whatever that is, that's your idol. Idolatry is why Jesus diagnosed this church in Sardis as dead. I hope Jesus wouldn't say that we're a dead church, but I do want to ask you, when Jesus looks at us as a church, when he looks at your heart, when he looks at mine, what would he say our functional gods are? It's an important question to ask, because your functional god or gods, our collective functional gods are the very things that threaten the genuine vitality of this church. Jesus says to this church in Sardis, essentially, you come near to me with your mouth and you honor me with your lips, but your hearts are with a false goddess. They're far from me. Well, the good news is that there's a cure for their sickness 
And I want to look at that now. We've seen the diagnosis. Let's look now at the cure. Look at verse 2. Jesus says to them, wake up, strengthen what remains and is about to die, for I have not found your deeds complete in the sight of my God. Remember, therefore, what you have received and heard, obey it and repent. But if you do not wake up, I will come like a thief and you will not know at what time I will come to you. Please understand that when you read this passage, it, I mean, frankly, it is intimidating, it's frightening. But remember that Jesus isn't speaking here to self-aware Christians who are in the process of learning to stop trusting their functional false gods and worship Christ alone. That's not who he's talking to. He's talking to a church that is altogether unaware that they're living off their press clippings, their reputation. They're unaware that there's even a problem here. There's a complete lack of self-awareness in this church, which is why Jesus says, wake up, strengthen what remains, and is about to die. In other words, you need to understand the urgency here and just how sick you really are. Look at what the worship of this false goddess is doing to you. Do some self-examination, man. Take a look in the mirror and see what I see, which is a church that looks very, very sick near death. Self-awareness and self-examination is important because the thing that is distorting your life right now the most is the idol that you don't know that you have. And you see, when you turn a good thing into an ultimate thing, when you value something ultimately and inordinately, what happens is is that your emotions around it, whatever that is, become intractable. They become pathological. You become unreasonable, insane with worry about whatever your idol is, panicked. Guilt and fear begin to run your life. You'll be driven by an irrational kind of ambition to get what you idolize. You'll have trouble sitting still. You'll step on people to get what you want. You will lie. You'll cheat. You'll steal. You'll ignore what the people around you are telling you, that you seem out of control, that you're working too much, that you're neglecting your family, that you're spending too much, whatever. You're sick, frankly, and it's destroying you and maybe the people around you, which is why Jesus says that he wants these people to do some self-examination before he has to do something that forces them into self-awareness. That's what he means in this last sentence when he says, I'll come like a thief and you won't know when I'm coming. Likely they won't know because they're so completely unaware. Uh, you, you know, you read that, that sentence. He says, I'll come like a thief and you won't know when I'm coming. You read that and it can make the person who is the most convinced of the doctrine of eternal security wobbly in the knees. But he's not saying that these people will lose their salvation. He's saying that he loves them enough to bring discipline, consequences, judgment into their lives that will wake them up if they don't do it themselves. There's a caveat about all of this self-examination that Jesus wants them to do. This isn't just to be sort of psychological navel-gazing. It's to be an examination. It's not just to be an examination of your own conscience. It's not supposed to be that. Back in verse 1, Jesus described himself. You may, have, you may remember this in verse 1. He said, 
describes himself as him who holds the seven spirits of God. This expression is used four different times in the book of Revelation, and it is a symbolic way to refer to the perfection of the Holy Spirit. Now, all of the things that Jesus says here, strengthen what remains and is about to die. He says, I haven't found your deeds complete. Remember what you've heard. Obey it. Repent. Jesus is telling them that they need to do some self-examination with the Spirit of God doing the examining. Right? So they need to be willing to do some self-examination, but allow the Spirit of God to do the examining. They need to ask Him to show them, convict them of their idol, show them what does still remain that is genuine and alive in their faith that needs strengthened. Show them what's missing in their deeds, motive that's missing, where they've gotten off track. Bring back the joy of the gospel to their lives, to empower them, to obey it, to lead them to repentance. All of that is supposed to be done under the watchful eye, the guise, the power, the work of the Holy Spirit. Now, why? Why is that so important? Why is the Holy Spirit so important in that process? Well, there's, frankly, there's a lot of reasons, and there are more reasons than I have time to talk about, but I do want to mention one extremely important reason. The reason that so many people are so unwilling to do self-examination, so self-defensive, is that they don't take their sins to the cross of Christ when they find them. Instead, they live with terrible shame and guilt. And when they're shown to be wrong about something, they think about all of the punishments that are going to come, and it, and it makes them miserable. And so they learn over time to avoid any kind of self-examination because it's just too painful. But that's not the kind of self-examination that Jesus is talking about when he says repent here in these verses. That's not repentance, what I just described. That's that's self-pity, frankly. Self-pity and repentance are two different things. Self-pity is thinking about what a mess your sin has gotten you into. It's thinking about the consequences of it, what a wreck it's made of you, how God will probably get you for it, or how your parents will get you for it, or your boss, or all of the problems that it will probably create in your life. That's self-pity. And as a result of self-pity, the power of the idol stays just as present in your life But you end up hating yourself for being so stupid. That's self-pity. Repentance is something very different. Real repentance is when you say, what has this sin done to God? What has this sin cost God? What does God feel about it? Why is it that I've been turning to this false idol when God has said in the Bible that he is good and that he wants shalom for me, and he promises to chase after me with goodness and mercy all the days of my life. You see, when you do that, and when you see that on the cross, God demonstrated his goodness and mercy to you, even while you were still an enemy of his, before you even ever trusted him, by sending his son Jesus to die for you, that, you see, melts you. It makes you hate the sin and the idol not yourself. And the idol begins to lose its attractive power over you. Instead of making you hate yourself, you hate it 
you see. And so the idol in your life slowly gets crushed bit by bit. Do you feel bad? Sure, but not a pathological kind of bad. Instead, it actually frees you because instead of making you hate yourself, it makes you say, I don't want this in my life anymore. I don't I know what God wants for me. He wants something so much better. And you see, that's why you need the Holy Spirit in this process. Working through the Word of God, because the Holy Spirit will always point you to the cross of Christ. Always. Not to self-condemnation, guilt, and shame, and fear, and self-hatred, and misery. He'll never point you there. He will always point you to the cross to deal with your sins because it's at the cross that there is hope. And you see, I want you to understand this, that when you do self-examination and you begin to hear a voice in your head condemning you, telling you what an idiot you are, and you begin to tell yourself, I, need, I should feel shame. I should feel guilt. I'm, I'm horrible. And you begin this thing of self-loathing. That's not the Holy Spirit that's talking to you. That's not the Holy Spirit. Because what the Holy Spirit does is says, yeah, it's there. Let's take this to the cross. Let's see God's goodness and mercy there on the cross. And let's leave this thing there at the cross. And over time, surely, that idol begins to lose its power when you do self-examination under the guise of the, under the eye of the Holy Spirit. Because it's at the cross that there's hope. Which leads to the next thing and the last thing that I want to look at here. I want to look at what Jesus says is the hope for this church. Remember that in verse 4, Jesus has said that there were some people in this church who had not soiled their clothes and that they would walk with him dressed in white. He says, for they are worthy. Look at verse 5. He who overcomes will, like them, be dressed in white. I will never blot out his name from the book of life, but will acknowledge his name before my Father and his angels. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Now, what is this? Uh, What is all of this about? Well, Jesus takes the white robe concept of the temple goddess and he flips it upside down here. The false goddess, remember, required white robes to worship her. But like any world religion, she, she does nothing to provide cleansing for their soiled robes. It's completely up to them, to the worshipers, to go clean their robes, to keep them white. But watch this. Revelation chapter 7, there's this scene in which John, who's the writer of the book of Revelation, sees into heaven and he sees this great multitude from every nation, tribe, people, tongue, worshiping Christ. And guess what they're wearing? Guess what they're wearing? White robes. And so in this vision, someone comes up to John and asks, essentially, What's up with the white robes? And that's not exactly how he says it, but you know, you know, I'm trying to just contemporize this. So he says, what's up with the white robes? And John replies, here's what he says. They have washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the Lamb. 
The people in the church in Sardis who Jesus says are worthy, they're not worthy because they're good, moral, upstanding people. I mean, they might have been those things, but that's not why they're worthy to walk with him. They're, they're worthy because their sins have been washed by the blood of Jesus Christ, shed on the cross. They can walk with him, in other words, be in relationship with him, have fellowship with him, be assured of eternal life because they have brought their sins to the cross of Christ. And this is the promise, you see, the comfort, the assurance in this letter. Even the people in Sardis who are believers in Christ and who have been enticed by this false goddess, people who Jesus says are dead, the blood of Christ was sufficient for their sins. And Jesus assures them that they can bring them to the cross, knowing that the basis for their relationship with God and the basis for their eternal life is always what Christ did on the cross, not their goodness, not their faithfulness, not their lack of goodness, not their lack of faithfulness. Because the gospel is not the good news of the gospel of the Sardis' goodness or the good news of the gospel of Jeff Kincaid's goodness or the gospel of whatever your name is and your goodness. No, the good news of the go- it's the good news of the gospel of Jesus, the Christ, and what he has done for you, for me, and for all of humanity. What he has done, what he did in the past, that's the basis for a relationship with God. And so here today... I would say to you, if you find yourself this morning thinking to yourself, man, I have a functional God that I have been sold out to. No matter what I say here, no matter what it is that I sing about, no matter how much I I, uh, read my Bible, study the Bible, uh, I have this functional God that I've been sold out to. You need to understand what Jesus is saying to these people. Bring that to the cross. Bring it to the cross. And there at the cross, you find God's goodness and God's mercy. Right there. Right there. Jesus says to this church, man, your lips are, you know, you honor me with your lips. You sing all the right songs and you say all the right things. But your hearts are very far from me. And maybe you would say that honestly. Under the work of the Holy Spirit, you would say, yeah, that's been true of me. Bring it to the cross. And do it right now. Let's, let's pray together. Lord Jesus, we are all guilty in this room, every single one of us, of having idols in our lives, functional gods to whom we sort of tend instinctively to turn to for security, for a sense of significance, validation, our happiness. We think that those false idols will bring us happiness. Every single one of us have these. Lord, I guess the biggest danger is that is when we have them, but we don't know that we have them. And Lord, this morning, I pray that the Holy Spirit would work and move in the hearts of people in this church, and that he would gently expose these idols, the trust that we have in these idols, and that he would He would point us to the cross, not to self-condemnation, not to guilt and shame, but to the cross. And that we would repent. And that as a result of repentance and continuing to recognize and to self-examine when these idols are popping up over time, as we bring them to the cross, 
power of the idols begin to be broken because we see your goodness and mercy even there on the cross and what you want for us shalom and that the idols can never bring that Lord would you move now in the hearts of people in this church Lord we don't want to be a dead church we want to be a church that's alive in your estimation We thank you so much for what you have done for us on the cross that unlike any other God in any other religion, you have done for us what we could not do for ourselves. And it's in your name, Lord Jesus Christ, that we worship.